Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Entering a new world created and sustained by a Buddhist tradition, traditional or modern, is to enter a life world, one with linguistic shades and shapes, and symbolic features that mark it out as unique. It provides practices that interrupt the familiar, that can create possibilities for new perceptual experience, lines of thought and learning, and, of course, emotional and feeling states. Doing so can open us up to new possibilities of experience, of subjectivity, where those feelings, states, perceptions and thoughts can lead to radical shifts, disruptions to our own sense of self, and movements unfamiliar. We usually talk about all this simply as practice, but in truth, we have entered a new terrain with its own rules, tides, and seasons. Depending on the need, desire, or fear that drives us to a practice sphere, we may be more or less conscious of the process of assimilation that follows. We may grab onto it, or resist it, The process is not dissimilar to the process of becoming assimilated into a new workplace, college space, relationship group, and so on. Despite the emphasis on individuality that accompanies much Western Buddhism, a deep dive into new spaces of meaning-making and practice inevitably lead to this process occurring. We are changed, or we merely play the part. One aspect of the practicing life is our conscious or unconscious relationship with this process. One reason so many end up in forms of spiritual materialism is that they seek to manage the spiritual or religious as an item in their lives. Some fall for the fantasy that they can control where the path will lead or how they get to navigate it. The spiritual or religious space is by its nature richer and more potent than a secular space and therefore transcends the mundane concerns of self-management and self-improvement spoken of in confident terms by those selling meditation as a lifestyle fix on YouTube or elsewhere. The spiritual religious carry opportunities for transformation that go beyond mere psychological development or professional progress or well-being. There are two broad processes that occur when we allow unpredictable change to take place and the path to become more than yet another personal project. We can experience these spaces of practice as opening possibilities of waking up. No, not in any ultimate global sense, although I guess that may come for some, but rather to aspects of our shared flawed humanity and our individual forms of confusion, reactivity, self-serving attachments, stories, fantasies, and so on. 
These spaces can teach us how deeply we resist life, our own confusion, and the natural capacity we all have to be awake to life as something far beyond our own delusions, desires, fears, and warped imagination. The way that lies here is unpredictable and very real indeed. We can also become shaped by these new spaces of subjective experience into conformity, the space, rather than being an opening out and development of a richer experience of the world, becomes a form of indoctrination and alignment with religion or spirituality as ideological container. We are shaped into a form that is reflective of the group, its key figure or figures, and its ideals about what a human should and shouldn't be. We are molded into new subjects that continue to lack imagination and that are fed by the fantasy of the collective vision and its mores. In both cases, there are degrees to which these processes unfold and are made available, and spoken of, or not. Ultimately, the two potentials are at play in all group dynamics, and we are best to live not as passive actors in the process, but as active participants. My conversation with Kim McLeod today is interesting for a variety of reasons, and its content inspired this introduction. As one of the first-generation Western practitioners and then teachers, he both shares concerns with them and has made his own way. He is one of those who have sought to innovate, westernize, and explore what happens to Buddhism when it is taken out of a traditional setting, whether through his pragmatic Dharma website, which is full of resources, or his insistence on finding language that works for those he taught and now writes for, Ken has gone deep into Tibetan Buddhism whilst committing to finding ways to have it speak to Westerners. He has in many ways been a key early figure in adapting and westernizing Buddhism, specifically Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism from Tibet. Ken's latest book, The Magic of Vajrayana, is the topic of our conversation. In discussing it, we look at a variety of topics that relate to the practicing life. Here are a few. What are magic and faith? What role do they have in the tantric path? Opening to experience and how the path can enable this process. The role of power and the guru. How mantras and deities can assist practitioners to wake up to their lives. The nature and role of reactive patterns and how to counter them. The role of language in opening up practices. Wittgenstein gets a mention too. And then there's samsara and the future of Vajrayana in the West. Experience arises like magic. If you practice like magic, you awaken like magic through the power of faith. So Ken, if you don't mind, let's start right there. Magic and faith. Your book is entitled The Magic of Vajrayana. So what sort of magic and faith are you and Naguma pointing to? Let's start with faith. Faith for me, is the antithesis of belief. Now, I know that many dictionaries basically equate the two, and they are regarded as synonymous in English, by and large. But I have found it very useful and very important, both in my own practice, but also in teaching and working with students, to distinguish between two very different things, both of which are referred to by belief and faith. Faith 
I regard as a higher form of knowing, I think this is in one of the notes in the book, actually, in which uh, you meet what arises in experience, open to it, see into it to the best of your ability, and receive the results of all of that, even if they upset long-held views or assumptions and so forth. And as more than one other person has said, faith is actually how you proceed in science. And it makes for good science and it makes for good spiritual practice or good religion. Belief, on the other hand, I see as what happens with ideology. You have a, you hold a certain idea inside and everything that you experience, you interpret in a way that reinforces that idea. Uh, so it's an emotional stance again, um, towards the world, which cannot be questioned. And so I see it as a closing down and a contraction where I see faith as an opening and, um, and a deepening. Many people approach spiritual practices, and, and this is very prevalent in the Protestant religions, as a matter of belief uh, and feel that to have faith is to believe in something and quite rigidly actually and that i have found to be a a very a deep problem in spiritual practice and uh, potentially a very damaging problem magic on the other hand i would define as the direction of energy attention and intention to change how you experience the world, where the world means the world of experience, world of, of everything. It's often understood to mean how you change the world, but it's by changing how you experience the world that you change the world. And that gets actually quite interesting when you get into it in practice. So those are very technical definitions. In the verse that you quoted, which is, as you say, by Nigama, an 11th century mystic, Indian mystic, about which we know relatively little. My friend and colleague, Sarah Harding, has basically assembled everything that is in the record about Nigama and uh, put it in a book called Lady of Illusion, I believe. It's uh, a translation of many of, her, uh, of one of her major works. Because there's relatively little, and a lot of other texts, and a lot of research associated with her. She's done quite a wonderful job of that. So if your listeners are interested, I would recommend that book. She's a very important figure in the tradition in which I was trained. In India, there's this word in Sanskrit, Maya, which is usually translated as illusion. It could be translated as enchantment, or sorcery, or magic. At least in the Buddhist context, the Vajrayana Buddhist context, it refers to the way that we experience the world is as if we were under an enchantment, very specifically the enchantment of a world out there and a self inside. You could say that the uh, practice of Vajrayana is about uh, breaking or dispelling that enchantment. So in terms of the faith that you were describing first, you talk about meeting experience, seeing into it, 
and then receiving it. This ties in nicely, I think, with an interesting part of the work that you've done over the years that I found to be particularly useful, which is your work on reactive patterns, which comes up again in the Madrika Vajrayana. So what sort of reactive patterns in particular do you think get in the way of people at least gaining some introduction or some initial contact with the kind of faith you're, you're speaking to there? Well, all of them, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to dig into that question. What are you trying to get at here? Uh, because anger can lead you to a very fixed idea about how the world is and make it impossible to open. Uh, desire can, wanting something. Pride certainly can, jealousy does, and so forth. Yeah, in the sense that it sounds so simple, right, the way you say it. So you, you look into experience, you meet it, and the last bit is perhaps the most interesting bit, at least for me. You receive it, or you receive what it can give. But if we think about reactive patterns, they're obviously, another way of thinking about them is they're a kind of codified system that we've learned for both navigating experience and and filtering the potential impact of it so it's not too much or it's controlled or it's avoided or resisted in some manner and i find the simplicity of of an invitation to well any of them are invitations in a sense right meet something look into it experience it receive it those are very simple gestures and yet they're so they're so far out of reach for so many of us and at least from my experience, both with myself and, and those I've, I've spent meaningful time with in my life, the complexity is all about those reactive patterns or some formulation of them. So I guess that's what I'm, I'm getting at. I wonder if, for you at least, there's some kind of uh, key way of thinking about that or recognizing it so at least these possibilities of faith might become more available. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. When you asked me about magic, I offered the definition that uh, magic is the ability to direct energy, attention, and intention. And what you've just uh, put on the table about the reactive patterns, in order to be able to meet what arises in experience, and what arises very often is our own reactivity, one has to have a level of energy that is a level of attention that is, operates at a higher level of energy than the reactive pattern. And you know this from your own experience in meditation. When you begin meditation, a thought comes up and bang, you're off on some story. But as you cultivate practice meditation, the level of attention that you're capable of becomes the point where a thought can come and comes in and goes away, and it actually doesn't disturb you. And that is the key, developing a level of attention which allows you to experience things without, having to, without being consumed by them or without having to express them and put them out into the world. Allow, that enables you to transform what is, or it enables, I, I don't say you transform, when you're able to do that, then you experience the reactive patterns differently. This is changing how you experience the world. 
and you experience the reactive patterns as a movement in mind rather than something that takes you over or something that has to be dealt with in some way. And that ability as it develops leads pretty directly to faith because as the blocking or obscuring mechanisms of the reactive patterns that you referred to, they can't operate when you do that. And so you start to see things differently. You start to see deeper into things. And then you get these results of like, oh, that is, things are very different from what I thought they were. Hmm. And now can you stand in that without pushing that away? And so faith naturally develops through this process. And, and certainly found that to be the case in my own experience that as my ability in a certain practice or an attention or in any of these things developed, I, I, I would find myself experiencing things differently. And not only that, and this is one of the great aspects of many uh, uh, good religious texts, is that you read this and you go, oh, now I understand what that means. I thought I understood it before, but now it has a totally different meaning. It wasn't that the previous meaning was wrong. It's that there's a whole new dimension of meaning has opened up. And I think some of the great texts and, or great instructions are ones that just keep opening up as your own practice matures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking while you were speaking, then I was reminded of uh, a conversation I had with a, a Buddhist teacher about these different vehicles. And since we, we are in part talking about Vajrayana, some of the earlier vehicles are, are interesting from this perspective because they, they seem to require an immense amount of patience when sitting with reactive patterns and looking into them in the way you suggest. The energy component that you described is clearly a major feature of Vajrayana Buddhism, which doesn't mean, of course, that it cannot be found in some of the other vehicles or schools of practice. When I think about Niguma, or if I think about Naropa, obviously anyone familiar with both of them will be familiar with things like the six yogas of either of them, which works with explicit techniques of building energy such as Tumo. Now, I have read your book, I've read other works of yours, and I know that um, some of the energy practices have been problematic at times for you. That's putting mildly. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, yes. So, <laughs> I mean, would you say then that patience has had to be a key issue for you too? Or have you simply found other, let's say, less direct ways of working with the raising of energy in order to engage with your own reactive patterns over the years? Uh, both, mm. without question. Mm. Every technique of meditation contains somewhere within it an energy transformation process. And, you know, even uh, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, is an energy transformation, and it changes your relationship with a certain level of reactivity so that instead of reacting to stressful things, you just experience them. Foreign measurables are actually quite powerful energy transformation. And uh, in the Theravadan tradition, uh, loving-kindness is used as the major energy transformation practice. That's its purpose, is to raise the level of energy which are experienced as the jhanas. 
uh, or uh, can be experienced as the jhanas. That's the purpose there, but there are many other meditation practices within the in the Theravadan tradition which uh, are very definitely energy transformation. The same thing with Zen. You have con practice is absolutely a form of energy uh, transformation because you keep coming up against your own reactivity in koan practice and you have to sit there and sit there working with the koan whatever way you're doing that as all of this stuff changes to the point that you finally have some insight into oh this is what the koan's about and you're able to present that to your teacher so I, I don't see Vajrayana as exclusive in this way, in any way whatsoever. The explicit practices, I never use the six yogas because that's just a mistranslation. There are the six practices of Naropa and six practices of Nikama. So the word chu, dharma, is actually the six dharmas. So it's more appropriate to translate it as practice than yoga. Mm-hmm. That was Evans Wentz's original translation back at the beginning of the, ninth, of the 20th century. These are, as you say, high-level energy transformation practices. They're based in kundalini practices. And kundalini is a very direct, and because it is so direct, it has some dangers. Actually, any energy transformation is dangerous for reasons I describe in the book. But uh, the uh, Taoist systems of energy transformation, such as the uh, qigong and the microcosmic and macrocosmic orbit circulation of energy, are similar they are they're quite powerful um from my experience they're a more refined instrument than the uh the, the tumo tumo is very very direct and uh quite challenging and i was well after i had been trained in these things i was having so much trouble and as i put say in the book i went to uh a tibetan doctor who's before he left tibet was a very, very famous doctor. He's one of the top doctors. And he uh, said, no breath retention exercises for you ever. <laughs> oh, well, that would have been nice to know seven years ago. <laughs> and even when I was doing the Taoist stuff, which is what I moved to because the other stuff was very difficult for me. You know, they, they say do 12 of these or six of those. And I found that if I did more than a third, I would start to move out of balance. So I had to be very careful with that. But patience, patience and practice is, it's very important because as you move deeper into practice, you become increasingly aware that you do not decide or control when things are going to change. All you can do is what a magician does. You create the conditions and maybe something happens, and you create the conditions again, and maybe something happens. And it's not up to you whether it happens tomorrow or a thousand years from now. And that's very important because in the West, we have this idea that we can control things, but as long as you're bringing a sense of control to practice, you're feeding a sense of self as something that stands apart from experience. And that's a very, very difficult translation, transition for a lot of people. I won't say it was easy for me, but I've seen other people who are really hard for it. Yeah. Yeah, there's that term uh, spiritual materialism, which I think resonates here, right? It's very difficult to... Yes, yeah. Well, I think it's very difficult to do it on your own. I think it's very difficult for a person without 
a community or at least some meaningful connection to someone who can help the process along is very difficult to get out of it because most of us, or at least many of us, are so cunning that almost anything can be turned into a kind of instrument for avoiding the letting go of control that you've just uh, pointed to. It's very helpful. I don't want to say categorically it's necessary. There are people I've met who have a natural talent, a spiritual talent in the way that some people have a mathematical or a um, musical or artistic talent. And so, I mean, Urjan Tuchel seemed to be one of these. He said this stuff just came to him extremely easily from a very young age. And it's not that he didn't have teachers, but it, he just didn't have any problems with it. Not everybody's like that, of course. Uh, but I find a lot of people think they can do, they can just read a bit here and take a bit there and put their own practice together. This is actually a little problematic because their choices are inevitably being guided by how they are now. And so they may not include something because some part of them is averse to it that is actually vitally important. And this is why I favor studying within a tradition until you have learned how things work and you've formed a sufficient relationship with your own complexities. There's always a point at which you have to go on your own, but most people do that far, far too early, in my opinion. So we need teachers. We need teachers to show us possibilities. We need teachers to show us how to develop the skills and capacities, strengths. And we need teachers to point out our own material, where, we, where we're stuck. And I think that's what you're referring to. Those three functions don't have to be in the same person. They may be, but they don't have to be. Yeah, I agree. And I think different people can see different things in us, and we can see different things in others. And I think that's essential. I, I know in my own case, throughout my life, my, my life was made possible in many ways by key figures uh, showing me my own shit, <laughs> to put it in a crude metaphor. And I couldn't imagine having sort of made it to where I am now without those people in my life. So, and that's probably, that's probably a good way into uh, one of the questions I pre-wrote for this, which is about the role of the guru or the teacher. As you well know, it, it remains a bone of contention for many, especially when, within Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism. And in part because of, well, perhaps our difficulty still in, in unpacking and thinking about and understanding words like devotion, reliance on a teacher, and transmission. How do you go about tackling this in your book? Because there probably is a good argument to say there is a bit of a lack of teachers in the West within the Vajrayana traditions who are willing, in a sense, to, to do the kind of thing you're doing. I'm not sure what thing I'm doing. but <laughs> Well, if you want me to qualify that, I mean by being willing to work with language, for example, right? Being willing to unpack some of these key concepts or terms within Vajrayana Buddhism, which are often taken as given rather than as a kind of invitation to explore by that. Oh, I could go on a rant here very, very easily. <laughs> the choice is yours, Ken. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's take this a piece at a time. You referenced 
working with language. So I'm going to start there. The first translations were made in the late 19th century, early 20th century, heavily influenced by mainly Protestant Christianity. So greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, these are not very good translations of uh, attraction, aversion, and indifference. I can't remember what the Sanskrit is. I know them in Tibetan. They're, but they're the three fundamental ways that we react to things. We either take them or push them away or ignore them. What I have found, and this is where I could go on a rant, what I have found puzzling is the tendency of many people to accept these translations rather than trying to revise them over the years as Western understanding deepens and as and, and you know the actual experience of the, of, of this uh, deepens in Westerners and then finding ways to express it actually in English. Now here, in some ways I've, I've been very fortunate in my life. One, I've received two very different educations. The first education was a modern education, which led to degrees in mathematics, primary school, high school, university, graduate school, and so forth. Very standard Western education. Second education was a spiritual or religious education with a person, that's my primary teacher, Kala Rinpoche, before Tibetan Buddhism had been impacted by its, uh, or affected by, or as David Chapman puts it, fragmented by its impact with modernism. And we can't underestimate the power of that fragmentation or the extent of it. And so I was trained in the tradition and I was trained in a way that was, it was pre-modern. I don't want to say traditional, but it was pre-modern. It was before the modern age because my teacher, never knew how to use a telephone. Before he left Tibet, he had never heard of the Second World War. He had heard rumors of the first. It was such a different world. And he had a totally different way of relating to the world because he related to the world through logic and omens and signs and magic and uh, in a very, very different way. And to be with him, you have to, had to learn how he was doing that. So those two educations uh, allowed me to contrast, uh, uh, to experience a huge contrast between what it means to be raised in a traditional or pre-modern society and what it means to be raised. There are very, very big differences. A third factor was that after, when I first started, really just when I was first starting to translate, a friend of mine, uh, told me to read Wittgenstein. I've, uh, not the Tractatus, but the uh, Philosophical Investigations. I didn't appreciate this. I just found it fascinating and intriguing. And I didn't understand the subtlety of all the philosophy in it. I, I didn't, wasn't even aware of it. I just found what he was saying just quite fascinating. After the three-year retreat, when I was teaching and translating, in Los Angeles, I became aware that the way that I'm doing things is a little different from a lot of other people's. And I attribute it to, at least part of that, to Wittgenstein's influence, 
to focus on how words are used. That thinking and what I've done with it permeates this book, permeates all my writing, of course. But in this book, I went to the extent of including a glossary. And I don't know how much you looked at that, where I'm saying I've chosen to translate this term this way because and I give some kind of explanation. For your listeners, I think probably one of the most significant changes, the word dharma in Sanskrit and the word equivalent in Tibetan is ch, is usually translated as not not talking about in the in the religious context, but in the philosophical context, it's usually translated as phenomenon. You know, so all phenomena are empty. That the word phenomenon, you have the noumenon and the phenomenon. This comes from Kant, which actually drives from Descartes, which is a worldview predicated on a world out there and a self in here. And so, even though you're talking about noumenon and phenomenon, this structures within, the, within the, the person, there's still the sense that a phenomenon is something out there. And that's how it's understood. You know, that was an interesting phenomenon. When people say all phenomena are empty, for instance, people look, well, the table is empty. And this plays straight into the, the epistemological versus the ontological biases of each culture. Eastern culture is primarily particularly Buddhist thought, is primarily epistemologically oriented. But you can feel the difference. If I say to you, all phenomena are empty, you go, well, that's kind of an interesting idea, but what does it actually mean? But what if I say to you instead, all experience is empty? That has quite a different meaning in English. Because experience isn't something out there. Experience is something here. One of the ways that I would do this and when I was teaching is I would hold up a glass or a piece of cardboard or a flower, it didn't matter what. And I'd ask people, where is, you, you see this? Everybody see this object? Everybody would say yes. So where is the seeing? Is it outside of you? Is it inside of you? Where is it? And they would go like and, and you can't answer that question. You can't answer the question, where is it? And then I would put it out of their sight and bring it into their sight and say, where does it go? Where does it come from? And they would just be like, because there aren't any answers to these questions. You can give a scientific or a neurological explanation, but there's an experience of seeing, and then there is an experience of seeing certain objects. So... It doesn't come from anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. It isn't anywhere. Gee, that sounds awfully like empty, doesn't it? And yet, there it is. You can't ignore it. And so it opens up a totally different way of understanding these things. So that's all in reference to use of language. But you get the picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this shift. And I think the point you make about the epistemological nature of many Eastern religions, and in particular Buddhism, is much bigger than people appreciate, right? I think one of the problems with our approaches to practices and religions more broadly is that the control you were talking about is not just individual, it's, it's social, it's collective, it's historical, and it's part of the kind of uh, the fabric of the way we make sense of ourselves because that's our culture. And even that shift to say something, to say this religion is primarily epistemological and not ontological is itself a huge deal. I mean, it's quite difficult to underestimate the significance of that. 
And at the same time, I think the word empty, even in our own language, we're challenged not just to find better translations of terms that were, as you said, overlaid with an excess of meaning by the Christians that were the first folks to translate this stuff. But even a word like empty, I mean, I think that triggers off a lot of associations and concepts for people too. Oh, empty is just the perfect word. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder if it is, though, because in a sense... And, well, the word in Sanskrit is, is empty, when it's shunya, you know, right, and in right, Tibetan, yeah. it, it, it's tongpa. I mean, if you say this is an empty box, you say the box is empty. You use the word tongpa. Yeah. Uh, and, and the thing is, uh, it, it, people have tried void or duvoid. And, yeah, yeah. You know, all, and openness and things like that. But emptiness works because it stops the mind. Yeah, maybe not all minds. <laughs> well, it actually stops all minds, some of them only for a fraction of a second. Mm. And they scramble like mad. Mm. Because, and I would say, I would do something which would stop somebody's mind. And then you see them begin to scramble. And, they would, and they'd say, well, now I'm thinking about all these things. But that's actually further down the road. In that moment when you say all experience is empty, there's a moment of being empty. And you, you, even if those only for a very small time for most people, you experience the world a little differently. And then the first thing you do is panic. Because now you're not in control. And now the self reasserts itself. And now you get back into figuring out how to rationalize it, and et cetera, et cetera. It works perfectly. And, you know, I, I, will, I will go down fighting for the word empty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah now i'm thinking about it um you know, i'm fine with what you said but you know i'll go a bit further with this just because <laughs> i feel like it <laughs> but um let's say you've 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 trained your mind to a sufficient degree to you know engage with phenomena without you know associating beliefs with it or without being caught up in reactive patterns there's a space for phenomenological exploration so the emptiness of a thing is it's also been named as space or spaciousness so that's a characteristic of or a quality of what might remain once you learn to uh, relax out of some of these what should we call them projections onto phenomena with you know all of the baggage and the reactive patterns that you drag around with you some of the other traditions that i've been part of for example the shamanic world they often talk about emptiness as pregnancy right Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not trying to swap anything out for anything else. I'm just thinking about it more as a kind of kaleidoscope of, of doors, almost in a way, right? Of coming towards experiences that can disrupt um, the kind of continuity of self, which gets in the way of all these things. I don't know. I found it very, very interesting to shift from emptiness to pregnancy, because in a sense, pregnancy of a thing is is empty. But within that emptiness, there's potential, which does seem to be the characteristic of, of experience, right? Things arise out of who knows where, <laughs> whether it's our internal content or just life itself. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty far out once you start uh, engaging with it and exploring it. Um, so I guess, I guess what I'm saying, Ken, is I'm fine with emptiness, but I feel that using other terms too can make it, can open it up more. Let's put it that way, especially if, uh, as practice goes on. You're touching on what I think is a very important subject, 
And I think we're only at the beginning of it, of engaging it in the West. And that is fi finding ways that are consonant, both with our language, in this case, we're using English, but also with our culture, in ways which express the way of experiencing uh, and the possibilities of experience that are part of the Vajrayana and tradition, or more broadly, uh, the other Buddhist traditions as well. And I think sticking to the way that the early translators did, they worked with what they, uh, they had, did the, the best that they could. But we need to, I think, as the actual experience of practice and mystical insight grows in Westerners, then I think it's very important that they, we find ways of expressing that that are that are natural and wake people up or you know alert people to the possibilities in the same way that the certain phrases in Tibetan that never appeared in Sanskrit. Hmm. One of the things I really appreciate about Buddhism, and I feel it is more this is the strength it has when compared to many other religious traditions is that in most traditions of Buddhism, the experience of contemporary masters, male or female, is recognized as being of equal authority to the scriptures. It's not higher necessarily, but it's comparable. And this allows the reformulation of how things are expressed to change really in every generation. And you were saying earlier about other words for emptiness. Well, emptiness was one of the first ones, but uh, you have Buddha nature, Rigpa, translated as awareness, the fourth time, which is one that Rinpoche told me about. Which, what is the fourth time? It says when you step out, some, when you experience things as having neither past, present, or future. Like, whoa. <laughs> uh, ordinary knowing, perfection of wisdom. I mean, Buddhist texts are littered with these things, and every one of them was a reformulation in each generation. Where, uh, because what happens is that you come up with something like emptiness, and then somebody says, well, there's big emptiness and little emptiness and middle emptiness and outside emptiness and inside emptiness, and you get up to 16 or 18 kinds of emptiness, which actually, if you work through those, you have a very, very deep understanding of what's being referred to. But it becomes too complicated. And then somebody comes up and says, well, no, it's just that ordinary knowing right there. And you go, what? And it's like a pointing out instruction. And this happens again and again. We're just beginning that process here in the West. Hmm. So if we carry on with this, then, you've used the word Vajrayana as part of the title of your text. Um, we can also talk about Tantric Buddhism. Right. Have you thought about that at all? Have you thought about another way of uh, formulating or defining uh, Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism? No, I hadn't actually. I mean, I, I was one title I thought of was uh, earlier when the book was going to look a little differently from how it turned out was um, Sketches from Thunderbolt Trail. Hmm. Vajra is a thunderbolt. It's the same thunderbolt that Zeus holds, actually. It's, it's the um, weapon that is held by uh, Indra in the uh, Hindu. Hmm. When, when you're doing, translating something from one culture to another, sometimes you come up with something that 
is really inexpressible. Um, I was reading um, a early Confucian scholar who, who has two words, Ru and Yin, I think. And the translator of this, who's translating from Chinese, just, he, he decided he would just use Ru and Yin all through the text because there was no way to express these two in English. English is, uh, unlike uh, many other languages, can import words very easily. And I think Vajra is probably going to be one of those words that is going to be imported. I mean, we've already imported karma. Actually, we've already imported both samsara and nirvana, too. <laughs> one of my students actually came across a, a sore in, in uh, Beverly Hills that had been called samsara, but it was... Uh, had the business had failed, and so there was this store, uh, this window with samsara, and then underneath there was this for rent sign. So samsara for rent. That's <laughs> a wonderful book. <laughs> Where I want to go is that the what is samsara? Samsara is it's not a place, it's not a thing. It is how the world is presented to us when. Uh, there is a uh, when we hold to an idea of self and nirvana is how the world arises for us when there isn't a sense of self and everybody's experienced that in their life there are several kinds of situations in which the experience is uh, arises quite naturally Sometimes uh, in the middle of athletic or uh, endeavor or uh, extreme exertion of one kind or another, where you are just with what is happening and there's no sense of a self standing apart and experience takes on a magical quality. You hear foot, uh, quarterbacks describing dropping into the pocket. Time seems to stop. But they're so fully engaged that there's no sense of self. Also, people often experience it when someone close to them has something tragic happen in their life. And they're with that person in a way that they're not two, they're not one, but they're not two either. And words come from you don't know where, but somehow the right words come. But there's no sense of self there. And when there's no sense of self, then in a certain sense, you are one with experience. And you don't lose any functionality in that. Everything you know about how to function is right there. Sometimes it's there more clearly, more simply, more appropriately, because there isn't a sense of self-operating. And people think of this self as a thing, but it isn't. It's, it, it, it itself is a very, very deep reactive pattern. And there are moments when it subsides. Well, I have two responses to that. The first one is about samsara and nirvana. I think both both ways of thinking about it or experiencing it are useful. I think there is something to be said for suggesting that the world outside of our experience does present both, whether it's, you know, the war in Ukraine, right, or a dead-end job or a shitty relationship, or it's, you know, great moments of pleasure, whether through sex, good company, um, connecting to your, your kids or nature, so I think both both are simultaneously true, but I would tend to agree that the challenge, in a sense, is is to work with practices that allow you to face the world as it arises on its own terms and find ways not to be dragged into your own personal, tailor-made, fabricated uh, samsara, <laughs> for sure. I guess I see the two as interacting quite strongly. 
what is your first sense of samsara? Because those are things in the world. Sure. Samsara, yeah. Samsara is a way of experiencing, not yeah. thing. I guess for me, at least, um, the sense of self as it dissolves to some degree or as it ceases to be a kind of mechanism that I, mean, I could describe it in a whole wide variety of ways, but as a kind of thing that pulls you into this separation from experience, which is where I certainly resonate with your ways of talking about it. I think that process also leads you into experiencing the world more fully. And that means the good and the bad and the suffering of others. And certainly, I, at least for me, that's meant that I experience other people's suffering more viscerally than I used to. And I think that's, in a way, not been a problem. It's been a kind of restoration of some deeper state or experience of humanity that allows me to actually deepen my appreciation for things like compassion or, or love or patience or, or care. And so from that perspective, looking into the world or looking out in the world, you know, samsara is not just my own personal experience, it's the reality of the world around me, which I can't ignore. So I might be able to engage with that without being caught up in the overwhelming nature of it all. But I think at least in this phase of my life, I look at it and I guess I'm not as content as I once was with a more psychological interpretation of those two. I think that um, actually acknowledging that the unpredictability of life um, is in a sense a feature of what could be understood as samsara, right? As cycles of a world that we aren't in control of. I think you're imbuing samsara with a meaning it doesn't have either, in either Sanskrit or Tibetan. Because the world is unpredictable, and that's its nature. How we experience it, and I'm not speaking psychologically really, I'm speaking epistemologically. Another word that I've dropped largely, not completely, but is the word, uh, is the translation of suffering, and dukkha as suffering. I found it didn't work. I could go to a group of people and say, how many of you are suffering? And they would sort of, man, two or three of them would hold up their hand or something like that. And I say, how many of you struggle in your life? And everybody would, because we all do. And it's that quality of struggling in life, because it's a, a sense of self against the world. That is samsara. That's how I say it's how we experience the world, uh, how the world is presented to us when we're in the grip of a sense of self, when we're gripped by a sense of self. I would regard it as deeper than a psychological phenomenon. And I find struggle much more helpful in working with, with people because, you know, I'm not suffering, but, but everybody struggles with their reactivity. We struggle with other people, particularly if we don't get along with them. Sometimes we, even when we do get along with them. And there are all these different layers to it. I find actually it allows people to relate to what the teachings are pointing to much more easily than this idea of suffering. Yeah, and I think that works. There's a kind of pragmatic and practical take on, on what it means to engage with practices of the sort that you've presented it ac across many of your books. I think that that's perfectly fine. I just think that there's a good argument for seeing these concepts as being a, a sort of ecology, whereby there are various elements that can come to the forefront and be present, while others may retreat for a period. Again, I mean, it's, it's not for me, it's not a problem, at least to talk about these things in different ways or from different perspectives or views. But I think that, um, as we were saying before we started recording this, 
uh, I look around me and I see a lot of people suffering. And that's different to 10 years ago. 10 years ago, they probably would have had a very similar response to the group response you got. Uh, but I see more and more people struggling. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, suffering with that struggle. It can be seen as two in two ways, or at least it can be seen from both ways we're, we're, we're looking at here as we mm -hmm. talk. The one you've described, which I think works very well as a practical means if you're a practitioner. And then there's the other way, which is disruption, change, uh, chaos, the end of things, all these characteristics that we're all very, very familiar with. To kind of close that thought off, I've surprised myself by recuperating some of the earlier definitions that were given to me a long time ago when I first came to Buddhism, which were very much more about samsara being the world, this world, right? this physical world we're in. And I don't see that as countering what you're saying. I would see them as kind of uh, potential companions along the practicing life. Interesting. I think in my training, it was never presented to me that way. Mm, yeah. So but that's yeah. very interesting. What I think is important here is that both ways uh, be presented, because I, I find that people who regard samsara as how the world is, that actually actually leads to a lot of problems in practice. Oh, I agree. You know, one thing I, I got out of the shamanic world is a lot of the teachings were presented in circles or on wheels. And one of the things that certainly did for me was it gave me a sense of, of getting away from dichotomies, right, of this and that, so pairings. And it's odd because so much, I, again, going back to a point you were making earlier about, you know, the history of what it is that brings language along a certain trajectory and therefore picking up very specific meaning according to a historical context which of course for us in the West does go back to Descartes, whether we want it to or not. <laughs> um, and as many have said, including Nietzsche, we, we, we're still dragging along the remnants of that kind of thinking. It's, it's so deep in our collective culture that it can be difficult to escape. So the, the, this shamanic, this neo-shamanic world that I was part of presented almost every single thing it taught as a wheel. So there was never two, there was always four or five or, or eight possibilities. And I think I've really um, taken that in quite deeply. So when I see anything from Buddhism these days, I'm not thinking it's one thing or it's two things. I tend to think, you know, what are the many ways it's presented or, or what are the many possibilities that it might open up to? And so I guess I'm seeing a multiplicity of possibilities. So certainly on the point you just made there, absolutely, I, I, I utterly agree. <laughs> and for me, that's automatic. So maybe I don't even think about it. So yeah. It's probably good that you mentioned it, yeah. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. 
So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship. And if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, as you've said a couple of times in this conversation, and I agree with you completely on this, that as you become more conversant with the emptiness of experience, so many more possibilities open up. And not only possibilities open up, but life just becomes fuller, which in a certain sense sounds antithetical. But the emptiness here is not an emptiness of absence when you it's being free to experience things arising and not having to do anything with them and that sounds rather mundane in one sense but it means you don't get trapped by your experience and so everything becomes fuller and and you just become more appreciative of the qualities of the world and the qualities within yourself actually uh, but what you're talking about is, is being reminded of all of the possibilities I haven't been trained that way, uh, for sure. I mean, the closest, and this has been an extremely important principle in my own practice, has been about understanding that dichotomies are, in every dichotomy, there is a, a spectrum, or, or even more than a spectrum. And this is contained in the principle of the middle way, which you know is very central to Buddhism. A lot of people think that the middle way means finding a way right up the middle. 
But that isn't actually <laughs> what the middle way means. The middle way means not falling into an extreme that it is this way or it is that way. And sometimes you'll be over more on one side than the other because of the situation. But you have this fluidity and you never take a fixed attitude, which goes back to our discussion of faith and belief uh, at the beginning. That I found very, very important because when I find myself fixed on something like even I will say I'll fight for emptiness to the till I die uh, you know because I just find it works very well and that's a bit of an extreme position right there but the uh, <laughs> the reason I, I, I would do that is because I find it works so well in terms of people's practice in other situations I, I when I find myself clinging to something and say okay what is the opposite here and I will usually find the opposite present in myself also and I went, oh, okay, well, we better take a second look at this. <laughs> Do you follow? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think in terms of uh, personal practice or personal experience, I guess at some point in my own practice life, after navigating so many of these dichotomies mm-hmm. <laughs> and being pushed and pulled between them, which <laughs> I guess a lot of people will be familiar with as an experience, I realized that it was, it's very easy to get into the trap of shifting from one of them to another, right? So it's like using another dichotomy to get out of being trapped in a pre-existing dichotomy. And so you kind of cycle through them. And at some point, I figured a better question would be, well, what's the third way here, right? What's the third option? So instead of being trapped within a dichotomy or trying to get out of it, which usually means some kind of negation or desire or rejection, what does it mean to actually find a third way? And in my very early days as a meditation practitioner, that meant cultivating indifference, <laughs> which was obviously not very helpful in the long term. But after realizing that was one of the third options that's often forgotten about when Buddhists talk about attachment, right, and aversion, they forget about indifference, which is so important, I think, yeah. especially if you're doing relatively well in life. I realized that there had to be, at least for me, some key and, and just saying, well, what's the third way every time he actually led to me saying, well, maybe there's a fourth way or a fifth way, and not to turn that into some kind of never-ending distraction of looking for the, the best technique or anything like that. But it led me to taking seriously the process relational take, which is, I think, in many ways, the kind of Western answer to the problems of dualism and the kind of dichotomies that are produced by that. And the process relational approach fits very nicely with the kind of wheels uh, I was talking about before that came out of the shamanic world, which is this this is a relational possibility. And richness is a kind of response to the isolation of a certain experience within a, a key term. So, you know, I like emptiness too, but for me, I want to know what else there is. <laughs> you remind me of a student who uh, made a point of always being the first in line. I said, so uh, change that habit. So what he did was he was always the last in line. (laughs) I said, okay, so now from first to last, these are distinguished positions. So do something different. Now I made a point of being exactly in the middle. And gradually I appreciated it. He had to have some way of being in a special position. And that was the fixation. And so, you know, first way, you know, second way, third way, whatever. 
And I think this is expressing what you're expressing in your uh, when you're referring to the shamanic circles is, but it's not using that metaphor at all, is that as much as possible, I try to listen and let the situation tell me what to do. Not me, but the situation. There's always some of me there because there are my own abilities. I mean, I, I can't do anything. And so, and there are many situations that said, well, you don't have any role here, and I have to let that go. I actually have no role because there's no way I can enter the situation without making it worse. And other times it was, as, oh, you have to do this, or you have to. I refer to a few of these cases, uh, situations, when I was talking about tension with my teacher, listening very deeply. I went, oh, okay, you have to let go of that. Okay, you can do that. And I think that's probably where it started, but I found that one of the most important abilities that I've, I've needed to develop, and I think this is something that can be always developed further, is, is to listen. To listen to your body, to listen to the world around you, to listen to everything, which in a certain way is an emptying of self, and be guided by what arises when you listen that deeply, or as deeply as you're capable of. Yeah, which is an act of faith as well. You're right, it is. Well, you said something earlier, which I think is a great way to go back into uh, a more explicit discussion of some of the content of your book, which was possibilities opening up. The book, I mean, has some of the, let's say, traditional features that people will be familiar with from the Vajrayana. Your take on them is very much of our time. And that speaks uh, to the value of the, the text. I wonder if we might just visit some of these key items from the book and do so within this kind of lens of possibilities opening up. Would you be all right with that? That sounds very interesting. Then please go ahead. Okay. So I should probably just say one thing about myself, um, which is that I've been practicing Vajrayana Buddhism for quite a long time, and I've had an on and off relationship with it. <laughs> 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 uh, for various reasons. Um, but if we look at the first item on the list I've got in front of me, mantras, people will be no doubt familiar with that word. Because as you rightly said earlier, Ken, I mean, this is another word that's become part of the English language, right? Yes. So if you were to say a few words about mantras, because the other point I wanted to bring up is that a lot of people sit uncomfortably with these different aspects of Vajrayana Buddhism. You know, it's simultaneously very attractive to people, but also off-putting. So if you were to speak a little bit about mantras now as a possibility of opening up, how would you talk about them? I need to think about that a little bit, because they work so differently for different people. Hmm. Mantra, you know, if you translate it into ordinary English, it the word means spell, like a magic spell. You mantras, yantras, and things like that. These were spells or charms or whatever. And I, you referred to people's discomfort with them. I think some of the discomfort may be attributable to this takes us back to a period of history in the West, which has been quietly forgotten, or maybe not so quietly forgotten, but has been suppressed or whatever. So we, we no longer regard mantras or uh, spell the spoken word as having 
an efficacy in and of itself, you might say. So just repeating something over and over again with the expectation that something is going to happen, casting a magic spell, people regard that as superstitious, as not real, or so people are uncomfortable with it. But let me take one mantra, for instance. This is a, a mantra which is used to open almost every deity meditation practice. All experience is pure by nature. I am pure by nature. Now, if you say that to yourself silently, you know, just think it or say it to yourself out loud, when you get to the end of it, there's kind of a shift. All experience is empty of nature. I am empty of nature. And there's a little shift in how we experience ourselves. There's a letting go. And that's why it's used to start deity meditation practice. You make that shift again and again and again. It begins to become part of how you relate to the world. And that is how many mantras work. Uh, another very famous mantra is, of course, Amani Paming Hong, which translated is basically calling on great compassion. Well, this is similar to the uh, centering prayer in Christianity and so forth. You say this mantra because it's an evocation of compassion, or it's an invoking of compassion, great compassion. And again, it moves you out of, out of a sense of self. Now, these can become rote rituals, not so helpful in that way. But the word mantra itself is sometimes explained to mean that which protects the mind. And it protects the mind from distraction and disturbance. And so some people, rather than sitting in meditation, they say, Om Mani Pemi Hong, and anything that comes along, they just keep saying, Om Mani Pemi Hong. And that way, they're able to experience what arises without being consumed by it, and without having to do anything with it. And then hmm. there's a whole school of sound in Sanskrit, which I am not conversant with, which views many of these mantras as being, being very carefully constructed to create certain resonances and experience. That is an aspect of mantra that I haven't been trained in, and I'm not, I'm not conversant with it. But I do find that the uh, mantra recitation, uh, particularly when you understand the meaning of the mantra, becomes an important aid and and brings about and, and works magic. I, I don't think it's too too much of an exaggeration. No, it was very interesting. And I was pleasantly surprised at the fact that you started off with an English translation. I guess that would be a follow-up question. You kind of just said something about the, the role of the careful construction of sounds within Sanskrit, and perhaps that happened to some degree in Tibetan too. But how do you feel about just using English translations of all of them, including something like, I don't know, Om uh, Hum? I'm not sure what an English translation of Omar Hong would be. <laughs> I shan't ask that as the next question then. <laughs> well, let's stick with Om Mani Padme, Padme Home for a second. It's a question of mine, actually, Ken. If I was personally thinking about the kind of things I do with practice, I would prefer to use English. But it remains a perplexity for me, both in terms of visualization that can often accompany mantras within uh, sadhana practice, 
and then the actual wording of the thing in Sanskrit or Tibetan. I, I remain open-minded about it. I haven't really reached a conclusion. So, In my book, I include a practice called the magic of faith, which is based mm. on nigama. And when I first wrote it, the verse, it describes the meeting of an uh, aspiring Tibetan mystic with this teacher, uh, Nigama, and, and his journey to that meeting. And I used a refuge formula, which was, was used quite often in, 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 in certain uh, contexts, uh, when I first wrote, uh, wrote this text, which was all in English. But then uh, a colleague of mine said, you know, we're, we're planning to teach this practice, but nobody knows the Sanskrit and it doesn't mean anything to them anyway. What about putting in something English? And so I did, and I, I, this is not a translation, but it expresses the same sentiment as the Sanskrit. Buddhas and bodhisattvas, wherever you may be, please help me to find a way. Uh, he reported back that when he taught it, that, this, that, that was a prayer that people could relate to. And again, I'm, I'm likening this to the centering prayer. And so that's a prayer people could say again and again, Buddhists and Bodhisattvas, wherever you may be, please help me to find a way. And it opens up a possibility in that. And that's not primarily through sound, but through more the meaning of the words. Mm. It's quite possible that people come up with particular sounds. And I think we'll just see what comes up in the years that come. But I've always been an advocate of knowing what you're doing. Uh, I wanted to know the meaning of the mantras that I was reciting. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't be in, in English, except for the fact that English is a difficult language to, to, to contract into syllables. And most mantras, and many, you know, like abracadabra is itself a contraction into syllables. And many of the spells in English were a bunch of syllables, all of those symbols were packed with meaning. And you were taught those meanings when you were taught those spells. So you, you, you knew the full range of, of these things. That's going to take a little while to develop in our culture. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So what about deities? That's the next one. A lot of cultural baggage there too. For a period, I was using a practice of yours, which worked with Dakinis. And they were pretty neutral as kind of, you know, these, these beings that I would visualize. That was the elements, right? Yeah, the elements. So I wonder, I'm one of those people that finds like visualization and energy stuff pretty easy. That comes to me quite naturally. And so I don't necessarily have a huge problem visualizing these quite elaborate entourages of different beings with eight arms and all of this stuff going on. But within that, you know, I quite enjoy exploring the simplification of it too, and then shifting my attention to appreciate different aspects of it. So sometimes the detail is quite interesting to explore, sometimes just a kind of quite bland, almost universal color or something like this might be interesting. And sometimes I use traditional symbols and then I change them to other things too. And I feel I can get away with that because I've been practicing for quite a long time. I wonder to what degree we may lose something if we change deities too much or not. So I guess that's a side question. But the real thing I'd like to do is, again, is go back to the suggestion I made before, which is how can deities, in your view, open up possibilities? And as the second part of that, then it would be, do you think we can thoroughly westernize the kinds of deities 
and the symbology attached to them that we might be looking at? Oh, this is a complex question. I think the first point is, uh, what is a deity? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Hmm. Every deity in the Tibetan tradition is the union of compassion and emptiness. That's my nature. And not everybody has your facility with visualization. In fact, for as you probably know, for many people, visualization is almost an insuperable obstacle for many people when they try to practice Vajrayana. So I, I wrote the section on deity practice with that very much in mind, but also drawing on my own experience. The starting point has to be the unity of uh, compassion and emptiness. And what I suggest in the book is something that I took from the Nyingma tradition, is that by hook or by crook, to use an English phrase, which I'm sure you're familiar with, <laughs> <laughs> touch, emptiness, and compassion. And these are, these are not concepts, of course, but an experiential shift. And let the experience of being the deity grow from there, rather than trying to visualize it per se. That is an approach which is going to involve feeling being the deity rather than visualizing being the deity. Suzuki Roshi once said, our, pra uh, the, uh, it, uh, our practice is based in absolute confidence in our fundamental nature. And so when you do deity practice, you take as your fundamental nature the unity of compassion and emptiness. And you let yourself trust that to the umpteenth degree. Now that's quite a jump right there. And as you let yourself absorb that and let that permeate your whole way of being, then the sense of being the deity can come alive. And that may come alive in the forms of the deity, particularly if you're familiar with the forms. Because one has to remember that all of these deities were at one time or other religions in there. They were the central figure of a religion in its own right. And it was over the process of centuries that these things came together. And, and the Tibetans went over and just brought everything they could back and put it all together into this thing we call Vajrayana. Uh, but it's not how it was practiced in India at all. Tibetans would say, the Indians practiced one deity and saw hundreds. We practice hundreds of deities and don't see any. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, so... So the sense of, of, of really being the deity, and uh, and you take, I mean, if it's, say, Green Tara, who's a protectress, right? What's it like to have an intimate relationship with that, with this figure? And, and it's a, it is a, it's a very, very much a relationship. It's your personal God. Taking on as one's personal God a figure from another culture is a difficult transition. Uh, a colleague of mine, Michael Taft, feels that Many people will do better taking the Virgin uh, Mary or Christ or some other figure. <laughs> no, and because we have to come to terms with those figures too. I mean, I don't know what the answers are. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> but I do know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the answers are to how this is going to evolve and things like that. I do know how I was able to 
develop a relation mm-hmm. with these deities, and I know how to point people in the direction of doing that for themselves. Mm-hmm. But but you really are taking on. I found that at first I thought I had a relationship with one particular deity, and then I found, rather to my surprise, that there's a different deity who feels like a companion to me now. I don't. I never feel particularly separate from him. But I know other people feel the same way about other deities. I mean, my own teacher, his teacher, uh, after he had his, completed his training, was the tailor in the monastery, which was a big job because you had all of these banners and it had to be renewed all the time and things like that. There was a lot of work to do. And he decided at a certain point, this is a complete waste of time. And he went and shut himself in one of the monastic retreat, uh, latrines, latrines in the monastery. You can imagine what a latrine in a Tibetan monastery was like. Not not porcelain, scrubbed every day. He didn't leave it for seven years. And during that whole time, he prayed and meditated on green Tara. And so there he is in this basically stone and concrete shithole. After a couple of weeks, they started putting food under the door to him, but he wouldn't unlock the door. That's how he formed a relationship with Green Tara. And it's very much about forming a personal relationship and letting the spirit, and this goes straight to your shamanic training, letting the spirit of the deity come into you and take over in you. That's what it's about. Yeah, good. I'm glad you used the word intimacy because that's how I see it. So that resonates with what you said. Again, that's that's a huge challenge. Even the word intimacy is a huge challenge, but is one of the keys to um, going at what I almost started our conversation off today with, right? Which is how do we engage with the simplicity of this act of faith that you you described? And intimacy can be a very good, mm-hmm. and effective, and powerful way for overcoming our our tendencies towards self preservation and self defense. Not sure which is the chicken or the egg here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, we're going to get in trouble if we try and figure out the answer to that one. (laughs) But there is a there is another word um, which is fundamental, and since it's come up, we'll we'll go to that one. Power, yeah, power. I I was very fortunate in that a, a a person I met in Los Angeles. We became good friends. He taught me something about power. Because mm. I, I really didn't know anything about it before then. Yeah. Well, it's also one of those words that people often shy away from. Um, in the West, you know, it has a lot of cultural baggage. And especially uh, today, we live in a world in which the social groups that we find around us um, don't really know what to do with it. They either avoid it or they abuse it in some way. And I think to some degree that ends up uh, being a dynamic that plays out in uh, Dharma centers. Vajrayana also has a has a negative side to it, culturally speaking, because of bad gurus out there. But we shouldn't obviously allow them to become an obstacle to us engaging with power because it's a fundamental characteristic of practice, of transformation, and of the potency of the um, practices and techniques that Tantra holds, but also that you, in many ways, are touching on and uh, weaving a way into th- in your book. So how would you present power then as a possibility for opening up? 
Could you respond to that? Yes. I'll give you an example. This doesn't involve Tantra or Vajrayana. Mm. One of my students, a long time ago now, is a woman who had her own business. What her business was is to uh, go to trade fairs. And people would come to trade fairs and they'd get all kinds of samples of things and um, handouts, etc. But they could come to her booth and she would take everything and arrange for it to be packaged up properly and shipped back to their office so they didn't have to take it on the plane or whatever. So she was performing a service. And so they could get their samples or their whatever they collected. She would arrange the shipping and handling of this. Well, sometimes packages get lost, sometimes things go astray. About six months after she started practicing meditation, she came to me and she said, you know, Ken, it's very interesting. This is changing me. When I first started this business, the customer was always right. And if something went away, then I would say, I'll find out what happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, and I would just bend over backwards to do everything I could. It kept me with good relationships with people, but at the same time, it was an awful lot of effort. And sometimes it was, all, it was clearly the customer and the client's fault uh, what happened. But since I've been practicing meditation, when somebody gets on the phone and is yelling at me, like, where's my package and things like that, I don't get upset the way I used to. I don't react that way anymore. I just look it up on my database and tell them exactly what happened. Yes, that was delivered to you, the mailroom in your building at certain such and such a time. Huh? One, right? And, and I mean, I, I don't I get into an argument or anything like that. I just, that's it. Now, that to me is the development of power. It's not about controlling or exerting. It's about being able to stand in your experience and be there. You opened up our conversation today, and we talked a lot about reactive patterns. The reactive patterns are what dissipate our power, or the power goes into them, and that's not such a good thing. When they take us over, you know, whatever power we have, it goes into them, and they run the show. Not such a good thing. And I said not too long ago that in situations, particularly difficult situations, I listen as deeply as I can and let the situation tell me what needs to happen. That's also power. But it's not about me doing something. Sometimes, if you have authority or whatever, you're going to use that as an instrument to get done what needs to get done. But if you use it simply to bolster your own position, then, as you know from your shamanic work, if you do stuff with a sense of self in it, it tends to come back to you in a rather bad way. Perhaps we could also add something in about power in practice. How would you speak to power in the practice itself? So let's imagine that we have someone who's got a daily sitting practice, right? They sit for half an hour twice a day or something like that. So we're we're talking about the on-cushion context. Would you simply translate the kind of the metaphors of that story into that same context? Or would there be something to add how would you see power being perhaps used actively within sitting meditation? I think power is too general a word here. Mm. Okay. For me, power is the ability to meet what arises. It's going to sound very like faith here. Meet what arises 
open to every aspect of the situation. And that opening is extremely important because it is only opening to every aspect of the situation. And that means what is happening in and around you and also with inside you as well, all of that. It's a lot of what a lot of people don't want to open to when they're in a difficult situation because that's where a lot of discomfort inside. But everything, when you do that and you're able to maintain your attention, which is not always easy, I find that you get a sense of direction. Now, how that arises varies a lot from person to person. For me, it's almost tactile. It's very hard to put into words. And then you move in that direction, whether you call it listening or seeing or whatever, it doesn't matter. And then you receive whatever it is. And sometimes it was the wrong thing to do. And now you've got a different situation to deal with. Sometimes it moves, you, it moves things in a good direction. But the ability to do that is what I understand as power. And so that applies just as much to situations on the mat, you know, on the cushion, where you have very, very difficult feelings coming up or have been uncovered. And sometimes the appropriate thing to do is to get up and go for a walk because you simply don't have the capacity to sit there and experience them without being consumed by them or suppressing them, which doesn't help. A colleague of mine who's died a few years ago, Yvonne Rand, was a great ad a Zen teacher, uh, but a great advocate of walking meditation because she had found through her experience of teaching that difficult feelings, people could be with them more often when they were moving rather than just sitting. She would tell, okay, go for a walk, but stay with the feeling. <laughs> And that would be an exercise in power. You know, and one of my uh, first major clients was the HR of a very well-known company. She's since retired. And our very first conversation, she was head of the HR department, and I said, what is your major problem? Do you want to talk with me about it? She said, I, there's so much conflict around me and in everything I do, uh, and I, I just like to get rid of it. I said, okay. So... When you face conflict, what do you do? She said, well, I just try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. I said, well, that's your problem. She went, what do you mean? I said, when you get rid of conflict as quickly as possible, you create winners and losers. And that's just the basis of more conflict down the line. And she looked, she's a very sharp woman. She looked at me like, so what should I do? I said, well, if you develop the ability to stay in the conflict, as long as possible, you'll find that more possibilities open up for different avenues of res resolution. And some of those may not may lead to actual resolution. So there are no winners or no losers and everybody's satisfied with the result. But the trick to doing that is staying in the conflict until those possibilities open up. And she just looked at me and said, I hate it, but I get it. <laughs> and that's how I became her coach. <laughs> uh, and I, I coached her until she retired mm. for 12 years. It was helpful for her, but yeah. for, the, for, for the company. But the ability to stay in that, that's power. And the ability, when you see what to do, to act on it, that's power. And the ability to stop when it's resolved and not continue, that's power. 
because some people, they just want to keep going. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we started off, um, yeah, by looking at a variety of things, but I feel that there's still this uh, ongoing question of, of the teacher, yeah? And that was partly a question I presented to you earlier. Now, you used to teach. Um, I've heard you say why you, you stopped. But part of me just thinks, and this is not necessarily about you, but there is a bit of a lack in the West, I think, of, of teachers who work with these Vajrayanic practices. I remember hearing from many of the Tibetan uh, lamas I met throughout the years that they would often say, for example, well, you should go out, meet lots and lots of uh, teachers before you think about choosing one. And, and then they'd talk about the fact that they had five to 10 or 12 key guru figures in their lives. And I thought, well, that all sounds great and wonderful, but where are all these people? <laughs> where are all these <laughs> teachers out there? All <laughs> right. You know, we don't have the luxury of it. So many people end up just kind of settling on the first person they come across. So I guess I have I have three questions which kind of combine, and you're free to take it wherever you want to. And this is kind of drawing our conversation towards its end. I wonder what your response would be to that point. Can Vajrayana be practiced without a teacher? That seems pretty much impossible. So what do we do in the West about that? Do we settle with whatever we can find or whomever we can find? And it also begs the question, if there are not enough teachers out there doing this very, very deeply, and enough practitioners engaging with it in a similar vein, how will the sort of innovation that you've been touching on and engaging in yourself come about? How much is that a real possibility? Uh, I don't know. I mean, really. If I speak personally, I've had quite a few teachers. My two principal, my principal teacher is absolutely Kalar Rinpoche. He's the first person I met, or first teacher I met, and uh, took refuge in Bodhisattva Vow. And under him, that I did two, three-year retreats, received many empowerments, learned Tibetan, etc., etc., etc. But another person who's very important was the Dejung Rinpoche, who's a Sakya teacher, uh, who happened to live in Seattle when I was in Vancouver. So we would, a group of us would drive down and periodically and take teachings from him. And he was very, very kind, very warm person. But there have been a number of other people over the years, um, some that I had repeated engagements with, some just a single. Other people I know, they've studied with one teacher for a number of years and then moved to another teacher for a number of years, etc. There are very few Westerners but there, there are more now, but for a long time, there are very, very few Westerners teaching Vajrayana. And there, there, there are more now. I, I think it's a bit like learning an art, painting or music, say. It's the same music. Some people study with one teacher for a very, very long time. Other people study with a variety of teachers, learning different things. Some people go to a particular teacher to learn something very specific. And uh, some teachers work out, and some teachers, teacher student relationships don't work out. They go their different ways. I think one of the one of the things that I feel complicates matters is that Westerners, on the one hand, are very idealistic. On the other hand, they're very individualistic, also. And there's also a tendency to, I guess, misinterpret 
what is expressed, and we haven't touched on this topic at all, uh, what is expressed in mythic language and then interpreted literally. Now you may recall in my book, I, Karmapa saying, the 16th Karmapa saying to me, at one point, you must have faith in Kala Rinpoche, the same faith in Kala Rinpoche, whether you see him fly in the sky or kill a dog. Well, that is a very good example. I didn't state this explicitly in the book, but uh, it's a very good example of expressing things mythically. Because what's being referred to there is a faith that does not depend on reason and doesn't change. That comes from a different place in us. It doesn't come from the rational or conceptual mind. And that's what's really being expressed with that statement. Thanks. Extremely unlikely that Kalarabshay would have ever killed a dog. <laughs> and I would meet that situation if it had arisen. Another thing that, that people uh, tend to put too much emphasis on is you can't do anything that displaces your teacher. Well, Atisha was a great Indian master. One of his teachers he'd learned a lot from, but then he had all these visions about learning bodhicitta, and he went to his teacher, and his teacher had never heard of bodhicitta. He said, well, I'm going to study bodhicitta. He said, no, you're not. You're staying with me. But Atisha's heart, I mean, he had to go because he had all these visions, and this is what he needed to do. So he went and made offerings to his teacher, thanked him for everything, and his teacher was really angry, and his teacher was a fairly short-tempered person anyway. And, uh, and Atisha left. There's no fault in that. There's no fault whatsoever. If you come to a point where you feel you can't learn what you need from a teacher, then you go and you find somebody else. It isn't like you're chained this way. Now, in Tibetan culture, loyalty was a really, really important quality. And you may run into trouble because they may interpret your actions as being disloyal. That's a different problem to deal with. Still a problem. I hesitate to say, you know, there, there's one, there isn't one way of doing this. There's so many possibilities. I know another Tibetan teacher who had an interaction with a teacher. He, had, he never spoke a word, and the teacher never spoke a word. But they were just together for a short period of time. And after that, his meditation changed completely. And he feels that was one of his most important teachers. That was his only interaction. So there's this tremendous range that's possible. And so I encourage people to really look and find people that you think can uh, help you. I, one of the qualities which I said, wake, wrote in Wake Up to Your Life, and I've said this to many people, find a person you will listen to even when you are completely crazy. <laughs> that could be important. Mm. Find a person who knows what he's talking about or knows what she's done. A lot of people think they've got something and they don't. And they may be helpful for a short period of time, but I, had, I once said to somebody, you know, you smell of the cave, Ken. I've never lived in a cave. I've done a lot of practice in difficult circumstances, and it leaves a mark. Mm. And so sniff it out. <laughs> and a lot of it is a sheerly a matter of luck, who you run into and who you hear about. Uh, I happened to go to a certain campground in outside of Tehran, and was from there directed to a Buddhist mission on the very outskirts of Delhi, where I met a Dutch nun who studied with a different Tibetan teacher, and she told me about Kala Rinpoche. Well, that's quite an intricate chain. <laughs> so I, I really don't have any advice. I don't put much, really much, in the adage when the 
student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. One of my most important teachers is a person that came to uh, came to me when I was as a uh, when I was teaching, and he studied with me. And after a while, I began to realize he was not, knew a hell of a lot more than he was uh, letting on. So we entered into a dialogue, to, uh, and we became friends. And over a twelve-year period, we met weekly. One or other was driving across L.A. in rush hour, and taught each other everything that we had learned in our respective trainings. That was a very rich relationship, and it is very, I know it's very important to him because he's told so, so many times, but it's also very important to me because I was completely stuck. I didn't know which way to turn, and if it hadn't been for him or somebody like him, I wouldn't be here today. Hmm. If I'd been sent to another city, I don't know how I would have turned out. So I know this is probably completely unhelpful, but... <laughs> <laughs> It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, look. Um, what's What's the future for you? This book's come out. You're going to take a welcome break. Are you still thinking about writing more books in the future? Would you ever consider returning to teach yourself? Uh, how are things looking for you? Things are looking pretty good. In 2008, I had an experience, which I've written about both a little bit here, but also in uh, a trackless path. And that shift in experience is what finished me as a teacher, uh, oh. and and I knew it, and it was a, it was the biggest surprise of my life because teaching comes extremely naturally to me even now, and but every time I've tried to move in the direction of teaching, I get profoundly uncomfortable, and in a way, it's very difficult to put my words in. It's just like if there's a sign saying mm. "Do not go in this direction," and that's something I accepted very unwillingly. It, it was just there, and. When I eventually left LA because there wasn't anything for me to do there anymore, uh, and I wrote Reflections on Silver River and Trackless Path, and now this book, I knew that when this book was done, I would be facing that same, like, where do I go from here? As it turns out, I've got a few projects that I want to do, which is basically tidying up my life. And one of those is a series of videos on translation, which I want to put up on YouTube talking about some mm. of the translation issues. Another is, I would like to, I don't know whether I'll get it done, but I hope to, is a book on relationship and conflict, which will discuss some of the issues we did around power, among other things. And uh, it won't be, a, I don't think it'll be an explicitly Buddhist book, uh, but a lot of it will be drawn on my experience and training. But um I don't, after that, I don't know. It's like a big unknown, which I've, expa- I've faced two or three times in my life. I mean, it's exciting in a sense. I find it quite unnerving and, and difficult because I have no idea. When I left LA in 2012, I had no idea where I was going to live or what I was going to do. And I found that a very difficult experience. Basically, I went into shock for a year and didn't come out of it until gradually came out of it and that's when i knew okay i have to write this book i've got rather more projects in front of me right now than i want and I just want to dispose of them but uh, i don't know where things go from here hmm. i do know one thing one day i'm going to die and i hope to be ready for it <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah 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 a friend of mine people that uh let me stay with them when I first came to this part of the world until I found a place of my own. He died a couple of mo- a month ago at the age of 91. So that gives me 16 years. Okay. 
Let's see what I can get done. Mm. Mm. So you know, the, the, uh, I've reached a point in my life where the end of death is now a very, a very definite prospect. I have no idea whether all of the training and death and impermanence and everything is it going to help? I have no idea. Mm. Good. Yeah, I appreciate that that honesty because I think that's the best we can hope for. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, we, we we really don't know until the time comes. No, no, we don't. I think we're dishonest with ourselves if we pretend otherwise. To be quite frank, <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, it could be. <laughs> that's, that's a fair response. <laughs> yeah. But it's been a delightful conversation. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you for your time, Ken. And as listeners will have noticed or heard early on, The Magic of Vajrayana is out now. It's on Amazon on hardback and softback. I certainly recommend it to those curious about engaging with or at least reading up on Vajrayana and thinking about it more. And Ken, it's been good to speak. I wish you all the best with your future projects and uh, practice and coming to terms with aging and death. <laughs> should I wish the same to you? <laughs> you probably should. I don't expect to make it to 91. So yes, go for it. 